How many of you know the name Bill Phillips? He was the founder of EAS. Anyone? Raise your hand if you know who Bill Phillips is. Oh, once again, at the service, I'm the only one. I feel good about myself, really good about myself. Well, for the next five seconds, because when I tell you who Bill Phillips is, you'll understand what a tragedy it is for me. Uh, Bill Phillips is the founder of a sports supplement company and was the author of the best-selling book, Body for Life. Uh, Bill Phillips, uh, this is him at age 35 and him at age 51. Uh, when I was 35, I was actually reading the book Body for Life and practicing its concepts. We can say safely that Bill and I haven't communicated for a while. That's a fair assessment for sure. Uh, his Body for Life planned promises and delivers transformation to your physical being. And I want you to know something. I know this plan. I, I was telling my men's group, which of course you're invited to if you're a man, it's Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. here in the offices of Prism Church, but I was telling them that here in my 51st year, I would like to lose in the neighborhood of 51 pounds because my wife told me last year on our 25th anniversary, I'd really like you to celebrate our 50th with me. And, and so I have been uh, commissioned by my wife to to be concerned about things like my ever-growing waistline. And, and, and to that end, I, I can tell you what it requires to be on the body for a life plan. Uh, it requires cardiovascular exercise three days a week for 30 minutes and uh, weight training uh, for 30 minutes, three, another three days a week. And then it's this wonderful plan of six meals a day, one portion of carbohydrates and one portion of protein Six different times a day. You eat that, and, you, and if I train like that, the, the pounds melt away. You, if I did that for 12 weeks straight, you'd be amazed at the transformational beauty that was standing in front of you. Problem is, I know what to do, but I don't really want to do it. And the gap between knowledge and practice is exactly what the Apostle James is talking about to Christians today in our continuing series, Bold Letters from the Blood Brothers. Now, it is important for us to see at the get-go that James is writing to believers. And he is writing a very difficult thing for many of us to hear he is forcing us, if you will, to look in the mirror of truth. And for many of us, this is a real challenge. It's a challenge like the way we see a distorted image in the mirror. Like, for instance, when men look in the mirror, they tend to see better. And when women look in the mirror, they tend to see worse. At least this is the way it worked in my family. I have gone to great lengths to avoid looking in the mirror of late. This is the nature of of James's teaching. He's trying to get us to look in the mirror and see what's true. And he begins in James 1, 19 through 21 by saying this, know this, my beloved brothers. Now, this is no small thing because to call us beloved brothers, family, sisters, and brothers in Christ, to, to make this connection is to presume that the people who are hearing this actually know and enjoy the presence of God in their life. They are beloved children of God by his grace. And he addresses them and us by extension and says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
Therefore, put away all moral, uh, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. James is stating with clarity what the scriptures say from Genesis to Revelation, which is Christians are commanded to live holy lives. And not just socially just lives. James gets to that too. No, we're called to be holy in all areas. We're, we're called to put away all the filthiness and rampant wickedness. And I think when you use terms like put away, I think of when guests come to the house. You know, you real quickly sort of clean up if you care about people. Right? If you want to honor them and you're having people over to your house, you generally don't leave it how it looks when no one has come over for a really long time. You, laundry all over the place, the kitchen maybe full of dishes in the sink. When you have a, a party, a gathering, you honor your guests and you polish. You know, you vacuum. You put away all the filth. And this is what we're called to hear by James, is to say if you're going to be in relationship with God, you're called to keep a clean house. Saying, you know, to honor the Lord, you want to put away all this filthiness. Now, only the biblically uninformed or those who discount Scripture altogether would object to the notion that God expects us to live ever-increasingly Christ-like lives. I find it odd that there are many who call themselves theologically progressive, um, primarily because they have this renewed passion, and it's a good one for social justice, but they often have a very loose interpretation of Scripture as it comes to some of the other moral uh, attributes of God, some of the things that we're supposed to implement in our Christian living. And, and that I find odd. But you know what? It's equally as strange to me that in 20 years of ministry, I've had many experiences, and James here is obviously saying the same thing, where people are Bible-quoting, you know, Christian, church-attending, Orthodox-type people, and they not only don't care about social justice, they don't care about moral purity in their lives either. And it's almost worse almost worse than a group of people that just say, hey, Jesus just wants us to be kind to people and that's all there is, or we need to help the poor and that's all there is. There's a group of Christians that have just an apathy towards anything. It calls us to, uh, and the scriptures is calling us to say, we need to be concerned about the totality of God's holiness. We should be outraged when injustice happens, but we should also not have a casual attitude towards the things that James is telling us to avoid, to put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. The brother of Jesus has referred to us as beloved, which indicates that both he and God had familial relationships with the hearers. These are people that are dearly loved and adored, and yet he's going to tell us something very hard for us to hear. He's going to hold up the mirror for us to see what's really true it will cause you either to run from God or to run to God. But it is possible, as a matter of fact, it is actually loving for someone to tell you truth that is hard to hear. If you're a parent and you don't do that with your kids, you don't love them. That's what the Proverbs say. If you think a friend of yours is doing great harm to themselves through some excess and you say nothing, and you're like, live and let live, but you actually know they're destroying themselves. That's, that's not loving. The most loving thing someone could do for you, potentially, would be to confront you with a difficult truth. 
I know when I've dealt with athletic coaches or when I was a basketball coach myself, oftentimes the player that coaches are most hard on is the one who has the most potential. See, the, the, the person, the young woman or the young man who rides the bench and never plays, they never get yelled at because it's never really going to come down to their performance. A win or a loss is never going to be in their hands. But the person who's really vital to team success, they will, they will get the coach's eye, or that is for darn sure. So it's a, it's a sign of value. And it is in this vein that the leader of the Jerusalem church, James, the brother of Jesus, is calling us to the pursuit of comprehensive holiness. James indicates to us that humbly receiving the word of truth, the truth of Scripture planted in us, is key to the transformation of our souls. And so it is in this way that we are going to actually look at the word today and pray that in staring at it and looking deeply at it and and thinking about it, that it actually begins to do the work of the Holy Spirit and transforming us, moving us towards a new place. And the reasons for doing so will become obvious as we walk. First thought for you this morning is this, from James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, and that is that knowing and doing are the keys to growing in Christ. Knowing and doing are the keys to growing in Christ. We'll read verses 22 through 25. Quote, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, I have to say right away, deceiving is a word that James uses multiple times in James 1, and it's to reinforce that our brokenness, all of us sharing a sinful nature, we are prone towards kind of kidding ourselves about how bad things really are in our lives. Like looking in a mirror and going, I don't look so bad, do I? I deceive myself because I'm really worried about how I'm going to feel about myself if I actually acknowledge the blob that is in the mirror in front of me. So we all do that in one way or another. James continues in verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts he will be blessed in what he is doing. There are two kinds of Christians in this passage, according to James. There are those who know the word and don't do it, and those who know the word and do it. There is a third type of Christian, and that is someone who is fairly new to the faith and not familiar with the word. But in all three cases, the word plays a central role. It is impossible to be a growing, maturing Christian without a growing comprehension of Scripture. You cannot do the Word if you do not know the Word. Hence, we have Bible studies, and we have small groups, and we have community groups. And our teaching at PRISM is essentially founded in and centered around the exposition of Scripture because we believe what the Word of God says about itself, that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it is God-breathed and useful in teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in all righteousness. We know that Scripture is the key to our growth, and, and James says as much. He says, humbly accept the planted Word in you, and that will save your souls. It's what gives you life. 
Many people say they know the scriptures, but oftentimes you'll find that people who say they do don't really have the foggiest. And here's a quick test for you. If you think any of these sayings are actually direct quotes from the Bible, uh, you may want to reevaluate the skill level you have in Bible memorization because all of these are either really bad paraphrases or not in the scriptures in the slightest. And I must point out that cleanliness is next to godliness is the chief failure among the five. That has nothing to do. So if you didn't shower this morning, God's not displeased with you. Your neighbor in the pew might be, but, the, but God is not thinking, oh, you didn't bathe for me this morning. That has nothing to do with godliness whatsoever. In, in this moment, it may be critical for me to actually point out one of the paradoxes of evaluating ourselves and our faith. And that is, about the time we start thinking that we're doing well spiritually is about the time that arrogance and our ignorance begin to demonstrate that we really are sinful at our deepest level. You see, we'll never get to a place where we'll be able to say, I'm doing well spiritually, and yet we're called to pursue spiritual health. I, I saw that last week as I was watching a televangelist always a bad idea. Um, and one of the things that this gentleman was saying, and, and I'll quote him, he said, I want to tell you something today that only a theologian could screw up in your mind. They will tell you that you sin every day. I want you to know something. That's a lie. I do not sin every day. And then I kind of like hit the top of my television because I thought something's broken. I didn't hear what I just heard. There is a truncated understanding of holiness that often comes with people who grow up in fundamentalist-type churches. They make a very quick to-do list of things that they shouldn't do. Now, you shouldn't smoke, and you shouldn't chew, or you shouldn't date people who do, or you should never have alcohol, or you should never dance. Or There's all sorts of really sort of rules that might at one time have helped shape behavior, but they're not scriptural, per se, and, and yet they get made into this comfy little list. And then people feel like if they don't do those things, the things they have identified, that that makes them holy. Or they'll think in their minds, they haven't sinned. Well, James points out to us today that doing good is part of holiness too. Holiness is not just avoiding the thou shalt nots. And if that were the case, if that were holiness a person could get ahead of the game by just simply locking themselves in a closet and avoiding other people or other temptations. It, it, my point is this. It's silly for anyone to claim that they didn't sin today. Even if you could avoid failure by not doing the things on your bad stuff not to do list, you likely left some things off that list. As well, most of us, when we're thinking about, including televangelists, what constitutes sin, we're forgetting that there are a myriad of things that we were supposed to do today that we never got around to even thinking about, let alone doing. I can't tell you how many times in a given day I am in my internal being, I am faced with the question, and am, I, am I going to do this for somebody else and sacrifice for them, or am I going to take care of my own comfort? Am I going to walk away from my Netflix binge and assist my wife in the kitchen? No. And so, uh, you know, and, and so this is, I mean, that, even though I didn't do anything wrong, I didn't do anything right either. And I love to forget that that happens continuously. 
Now, whether you're a delusional TV preacher or a legalistic Christian, what we all can be assured of is that we will never know the joy of the Lord through our own righteousness. You will never, with a capital N, never be at peace with God because you're doing well spiritually. Because at the moment you start thinking you're doing well spiritually, you are likely missing out on all those areas where you're not doing well spiritually. So you might think, well, where's our comfort? Well, our comfort is in that Jesus has made us righteous before the Father. Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 22, one of my favorite sections of Scripture. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. And here's how we know we are righteous in God's sight. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. By virtue of your faith in Christ, by virtue of your testimony that you walk with Jesus, that you're depending on him to make you at peace and justified being in the presence of God, because of that and that alone, your heart can rest that you are justified in the presence of God. And yet, here is James, the brother of Jesus, telling us unequivocally, that God is pleased with our obedience, glorified through our pursuit of holiness and the actual things that we do that reflect his character, and that when we put into practice that which we've learned in the word of God, we'll be blessed through those acts. These are means of grace by which we experience God, we grow in Christ, we grow in Christ-likeness, we experience a blessing. James says, whoever is a doer, he will be blessed in his doing. I don't know about you, but I hate going to the doctor, and I'll tell you why. Because even if I have to go to the doctor for like the free flu shot, they make me get up on that stinking scale. I mean, that's like, I'm like horrified of that. I don't go just so I don't have to stand on the scale and have the nurse go, hmm, a little heavy there, Mr. Ryer, aren't you? I mean, it really is. It's one of those thoughts where I think I just don't want to do this. I know what the doctor's going to say to me if I go. You're overweight, your cholesterol's high, certain death is coming, blah, 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 you know? And I think to myself, and I got to pay for this, you know what I mean? <laughs> Dr. Krabs in the back going, Chuck, Chuck, Chuck. And you may be thinking to yourself, you're an idiot, Pastor Chuck, and thank you for just keeping that to yourself. But I'll tell you, we're all in this boat oftentimes when it comes to a comprehensive spiritual health inventory. We avoid certain passages of Scripture. We avoid church altogether because the last thing in the world we want to hear is a sermon. You know, it always seems to happen that you'll stroll into church on that week. They're talking about that thing you're dealing with. Ever found that to be true? Oh, man. We also avoid community. Some of you desperately need to be involved in a community group because you know being tethered to others will help you grow in Christ. And that's why we emphasize community groups. That's why we discourage solo Christianity. And that's why in the fall, we're going to really, really encourage you to find a place where you can connect with other believers in community group. Some of us just go about avoiding that friend who you know is enthusiastic about Jesus. You just don't want to hear what others have to say. And most importantly, you don't want to hear what Scripture says. But we critically need to remember 
what we look like in the mirror of Scripture. Because that will help us realize again that we're saved only by grace. It will drive us into the presence of God. And it's in the presence of God that we begin to grow. Just like James said about suffering earlier in this chapter, the sanctifying process of looking at who we are versus the holiness of God reminds us of the grace of God, draws us to the love of God, and encourages us to engage him again. And on that note, only recently have I begun to weigh myself every morning. And it does remind me that my health is taking a nosedive. And it is moving me, ever be it like the Titanic slowly in an ice storm, uh, uh, away from that which is unhealthy. This is the nature of knowing and doing. They're the keys to growing in Christ. Second thought for you is this today. Doing and knowing reflect the attributes of Christ. If you're looking for a motive, how do we get past? How does somebody who doesn't feel like exercising get in the mood to do so? You know, ironically, sometimes it's a picture of myself from a really bad angle that makes me go, whew, somebody needs to get back on the wagon, you know? For many of us, we, we think that's what we need to do is be guilted. If we just be guilted spiritually, then we'll, we'll start acting like we're supposed to. This is really not what Scripture is calling us to. Not only does Jesus call us the beloved, but he says that really, ultimately, this is about glorifying Christ. It's about the privilege of being somebody who reflects the attributes of Jesus. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, there's once again us deceiving ourselves, this person's religion is worthless. That's a very strong statement. If I was to tell you one-on-one that your religion was worthless, I'm confident in our culture that would be offensive. James is saying, listen, I love you. You're my brothers and sisters. You are the beloved of God. But I'm telling you, if your faith isn't meaningfully pursuing the righteousness of God, it really isn't real. We'll get to more of that in the weeks ahead. James is saying to you and I here in verse 27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So again, we see the the dual nature of the pursuit of holiness. We are called to social justice, and this is something where the American evangelical church over the last 50 years has been pretty, pretty tunnel visioned on one or two issues with regards to social justice and thank the Lord The millennial Christian generation is making the church open their eyes to the variety of ways that we're supposed to be involved in issues of social justice in our culture. Thank God for that change. But we also can't lose the second part of this verse, which is in our zeal for pursuing social justice, we can't forget that there is a world of sin that we're supposed to be avoid, we're supposed to avoid being stained by. I mean, there are temptations out there for all of us. And they're just crying out for us to imbibe. And we're told to to be careful of both. James comes full circle here. It's really interesting. By readdressing the tongue. Earlier he said that we should be slow to speak and slow to become angry because anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And so many of us have had to really learn to become self-controlled or really see God sanctify us in the area of our anger. Some have tried to say, oh, my anger is righteous anger. And I would just like to say, if, 
if you want to declare your anger is righteous anger, do us all a favor and let some wise people in your life assess whether this is true first before you start blasting all of us with your holy wrath. In in this passage, uh, what you see is him encouraging the bridling of our tongues. Now, to be able to understand that, you have to have some contact with animals and farms, all right? Because what happens is, is the bridle controls a bit that is in the mouth of an animal. To bridle our tongues meant we're going to put something in our mouth and we're going to let somebody else have the reins, the controls. Obviously, ultimately, it's God, but the means of God's grace oftentimes is people who are wiser and smarter than you, people who are close to you and love you. It's taking the step to say, I'm going to have somebody evaluate this before I shoot this email off. I'm going to be careful and talk to somebody before I have this confrontational conversation with somebody. You know, for some of us who've been married a long time, it takes real discipline to not just say what we think. You have to actually say, you know what, I should probably hold on to my tongue talk with a friend, and then readdress this another time. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be patient in my approach to talking about this issue within my marriage that is, that is challenging. You see, we, we have to bridle our tongues. We have to allow somebody, ultimately Jesus, to hold on to the reins. James also linguistically revisits the issue of purity. As you recall in the earlier part of James, he said that we were to put away all filthiness. Now he's declaring that we're to aspire to another kind of Christian faith, a Christian faith that is undefiled. Similar word. Undefiled faith is one that cares for the needy and the broken in all areas of life and keeps oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, we're given two examples of what that means in James's context. It was caring for orphans and widows. But that's just the short list. The list of things that we could do to help those in need is quite comprehensive. And that is why the mercy study that's going on at our church on Wednesday nights, you can see Brooks and Chris and the McGibbons for more information about that. If you want to know who they are, ask me afterwards. We are praying that through their study and through an engagement of the subject of mercies, of ministries of mercy, that a team of people with a real heart for this will be birthed in our church and really lead the pack, really show the way to the rest of us. Jesus said, and it's recorded in the book of Acts, that there's more joy in giving than receiving. And so what is the niche of our young church? We're saying, God, where do you want us to serve? Is there something in particular that we should be doing? Our church is unbelievably committed in the long term to missions and mercy. We were from day one required to give 10% to church planting and missions And we have committed as a group of elders to step up our giving to missions and mercy as we go. So that by the time we would have a million dollars in church budget, we'd be giving half of it away to missions and mercy. We're committed to that because we believe that there is where the heart of God is. We're we're committed to the reality that attention to the needy reflects the concerns of God. And that's what our pursuit of holiness is really all about. We pursue holiness because it is commanded, but we pursue holiness because it's motivated by the reality of God's grace in our lives and the privilege we have of showing others what God's character looks like in real time. You know, in the same way Jesus was the perfect 
incarnation of God in human flesh, that we can see the manifestation of God's characteristics in Christ. And the man Christ Jesus, we can see the compassion and yet the holiness, the grace and the truth of who God is. We see that in Jesus. Well, Jesus has called the church to be this representative of him as well, a representative of his attributes to all whom we, with whom we walk. He said this in John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Jesus had gone out. He was about to be crucified. He's sitting down with his friends, and he said, Now is the Son of Man, he's praying, glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will see me, seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then he gives what is a fairly familiar command that most of us would maybe even paraphrase or be able to paraphrase. Jesus says, a new command I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, there are a lot of people that would say, you know, all religions are the same. They all teach us to love and care, and that on its face level is not true. But uh, let's assume for argument's sake that all religions did have some variation of love your neighbor as yourself or love one another. Jesus is, is, Jesus is saying, I want you to love one another so that people will see me in your relationship. I want you to love one another so that I'm seen. By, all, by this, they'll know that you are my disciple. He's calling us not just to love one another so that we can have a touchy-feely kumbaya community. He's wanting people to actually see him in the way we love each other. I mean, it's important, and there's something really enjoyable about being in loving community. And there's something very satisfying to our souls, but that's not the end. The end is the glory of Christ. The end is a, a reflection of the attributes of Christ. Fifteen years ago, I took the Body for Life Challenge. Now, this is a 12-week challenge. It's a contest. They give away a Lamborghini. You take the before picture, which I got to tell you, my before picture was awesome. I mean, it demonstrated before as never before. I got to tell you, amazing. I'm really good at the before picture. Twelve weeks later, I'm not certain that that was an award-winning picture, so I just never sent it in. But the goal of this, this contest should you choose to accept it, is your glory. It's people going, what an amazingly self-disciplined stud you are. What an amazingly beautiful, hot woman you are. You've transformed yourself. See, this is the goal. But this isn't the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is to say, look who transformed you. Look who's presence in your life has brought about radical transformation. We don't want people to look at us and say, what great followers of God these people are. We want people to say, what a great God these people follow. This is about the glory of Christ. So what now, you ask? What if there exists this chasm between your hearing and your doing? Well, the scriptures call us to humbly turn to God in repentance. In the 16th century, the monk Martin Luther lit the 
fire that was the Protestant Reformation by tacking 95 theses on the castle door at the Church of Wittenberg. And his primary thesis was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Practically, what this means is that by his strength and his grace, we make a renewed commitment to pursue continued transformation into Christ's likeness. You say, well, I, I don't have the desire to do that. I've been there. I know that. But even at that moment, repentance looks like, Jesus, change me. Jesus, I know I'm supposed to look like this. Do a work in me. And this is where the gospel gets applied to our lives, the gospel that we celebrate, the grace of God. You see, you can't access the grace and strength of God until you're in his presence. But as as unholy people, we only enter into the Lord's presence with confidence because of what we read about earlier, the righteousness of Christ that is given to us through our faith. You are made okay with God. He transforms you by Christ so that You are free to enter into his presence and get sympathy and help in your time of need. He says, come, have relationship with me. And it's in that relationship that you can actually be free to go, God, I know I'm supposed to care about the things you care about. And I confess to you that I don't. You say, God, I know that I'm supposed to be burdened by the things that burden your heart. But I must confess to you today that I'm not. As well, in the context of this relationship is where we, the beloved, must contend with the reality that our passive attitudes about areas of unholiness in our lives, our passive attitude about injustice in our culture, our, our, our passive attitudes grieve our Father. They trouble His heart. Your and my lack of gratitude to him and a lack of desire to please him saddens the Holy Spirit. That's what the scriptures say. See, it's in relationship with him that that becomes real. And perhaps today your time in communion should be spent asking God to help you see how your behavior and attitudes grieve him. Daring to ask him, Lord, would you show me in some way how I make you sad? There are times in my relationship, mind you, 26 years this summer with my beautiful wife, where I have been less than wonderful to be with. I know that's not hard for many of you to, to believe. And, uh, but what generally transforms my character is when the tears start coming down Carolyn's face. At that moment, it's like, All right, I screwed up, didn't I? Carolyn doesn't cry a lot, so if I push her to that edge or her son does, we usually know. It's, oh, that fight's over. What do we do? See, when I recognize that I really have hurt her in some way, it creates transformation in me because I love her, and I want to love her better. And so many of us have to come by the grace of the Lord into his presence and ask him for wisdom which he said he'd freely give without finding fault. And many of us need to say, Lord, I need to see so that I will be moved to action what my behavior does in terms of harming and, harming and, and giving you uh, grief 
making you sad. See, it's in that that we realize he's kind and it causes us to turn to him. So let's do that today, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, we have no easy way to transition into we desperately need you. <laughs> Father, I, I with my friends and family here recognize that there are areas of my life that are displeasing to you and I must confess with them that I don't care like I should. And frankly, there are many days where I don't care at all. And so the beginning point for us is to come into your presence by Christ's righteousness alone and confess that we haven't cared. And then, Father, we would pray here with you that you would draw us into deeper fellowship with you day in and day out, that in walking with you we would want to please you, that in hearing from you we would see the areas of our lives that displease you and we would be moved to turn and ask you to forgive us and and ask your spirit to give us strength and grace to change and father many of us today just have to beg you to do something special in our hearts by your spirit's power to reignite a passion to pursue that which pleases you and not just because it makes you happy but because people will then get to see jesus in and through us in the way we live, the way we care for others, and especially in our church where the way believers care for one another. Jesus, you said it is by this that they will know that we are your disciples. So we pray, would you be seen, Jesus, in us? For we pray it in your name.